You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Today we return to one of our favourite topics on this show, which is the ordeals that unemployed workers in Australia must go through in order to get their payments. To look at the latest iteration of this system of surveillance and punishment, I am speaking with Dr. Simone Casey. Welcome to the show, Simone. Hi, Anne and everybody listening. I'll just let our listeners know, Simone, that you are a Senior Policy Advisor with ACOS, which is the Australian Council of Social Services, the peak body for social services in Australia. And you have been a Volunteer Policy Advisor with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and a past researcher with the progressive policy think tank per capita. Uh, So just going by that brief bio, Simone, it seems to me like you've spent your career observing the workings of employment services in Australia. And so for those who know nothing about this industry, although I imagine unemployed workers are probably painfully aware of it, could you give us an overview of the industry, just like what it is and how it came into being? Yes. Before I um, was in the roles that you've mentioned, I spent 14 years working for a peak body in the employment services sector. So when I started working there, I actually had no idea about what had happened to employment services because I'd been overseas for a while. And I came back to find out that they'd been um, privatised in about 1998. So that was when they first turned into the job network. Um, So that was a big sort of surprise to me. So Australia's employment services are actually one of the first in the world to be privatised. And we are still the only country that has an entirely privatised employment services system that operates only with a market-based logic. Mm. The services have now been privatised for over 20 years and they've been through quite a few rounds of reform. They went through a major round of reform when they changed from the job network to Job Services Australia and then the most recent version is the Job Active version and that Job Active version is just about to be replaced by a new version called Workforce Australia. So the way I understand it is that the federal government via the Department of Employment, whatever version that's in, it writes a contract and then it tenders out that contract to ask other entities to implement this service that the person receiving unemployed benefits is required to attend in order to get the benefits. So there's three players, the unemployed worker, the job agency or the employment services provider, and then the government. Is that kind of how it looks? Yes, it's absolutely correct. Um, in terms of privatisation, there's not-for-profit organisations as well as for-profit organisations. So over the last 24 years, we've seen um, the market change somewhat. Originally, 
There were about 309 different organisations and a lot of them were quite small community organisations. So when the first tender for the services happened, there was quite a lot of diversity in the market. And um, over time, that market has consolidated so that from around 300 different providers, we shrunk down to about 103 in the Job Services Australia era. And then we went to around 40 in the Job Active era. Mm. So the marketization logic or the privatization logic was based on sort of a theory that community organisations with local connections would be able to do a better job of helping people who are experiencing unemployment get work. Um, really what we've also seen over the last 20 odd years is a shift away from local capability of small organisations to even some large multinational welfare to work companies who are providing the services through the contracts from the government. And those contract rules will you know, include things like administration of mutual obligation rules. Mm. And so I think oftentimes people confuse the role that employment services providers play in the administration of the mutual obligation rules because they're actually contractually obliged to do those things. And having come from that sector, I know that they are often not that happy about those rules themselves. Um, and so it creates quite a lot of um, conflict within their own organisations about, you know, on one hand, they're genuinely trying to help people who are experiencing unemployment. But on the other hand, they have a range of very inflexible and some would say punitive rules that they have to administer. And if they don't administer them, they risk losing their business and they also, you know, risk sanctions from the Department of Employment as well. Mm. So the Department of Employment really, you know, rules the roost here in many ways, although many people's experience is just directly with that provider. That's what your average unemployed worker would not perceive, is this hierarchical power structure where the department is sitting above these job service providers and that contract really does shape the industry and it's interesting, often on this show, we talk about how the federal government with its purchasing power, which is, you know, it's a currency issuer, so it's got bottomless pockets to purchase. And we often talk about how the federal government can create a market. And this is a prime example of how the federal government creates a market. If anyone doesn't quite understand what the employment services industry is, just have another look when you go through your local retail centre. Yeah. <laughs> And you will see these agencies with their signage like WorkSkill or Max Employment or Serena Russo. They usually pop up in every shopping mall and every retail centre. Yeah, that's right. And close to Centrelink as well. And mm -hmm. there's a whole other sector called the Disability Employment Services that has been subject to very similar process of um, privatisation and marketisation. So Max, Matchworks, Serena, they might also be disability employment service providers. So there's a plethora of these shop fronts collected around Centrelink. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Over the next few months, this industry will be going through something of a transformation because there's now a new contract that's being implemented. This new system will be called Workforce Australia, not Job Active. 
Could you just describe this new contract and what we might expect from it, particularly from the point of view of unemployed people? Workforce Australia is really quite a different model to the ones that have come before. So this current change is really one of the most radical shake-ups to the whole system. It's based on a review that began in around 2018. And so the expert panel review came up with some broad concepts for the new model, which were intended to address the systemic dysfunction that many people had identified for far too many years. So it set out some broad guidelines what this you know, new model should look like. It also recommended the shift to uh, digital employment services, which coincides with a sort of broader digital transformation that's going on in society anyway, to be able to create efficiencies, I suppose, as well as to reinvest the resources that have been spent on employment services back into providing better services. Mm-hmm. The amount of money that has been going into the job active system before unemployment increased with COVID, it was about $1.4 billion per year. Billion with a B. Yeah, with a B. <laughs> <laughs> So the idea now is to maintain a similar level of investment to what was going into the job active system, but 50% of people will be using digital employment services. So the cost per capita for people in digital employment services will go down like incredible amounts. And the idea is that those people who have had more difficulty finding jobs will get the extra investment in the new Workforce Australia model. So what we're saying is that unemployed workers will be put into two buckets and one bucket will be a digital employment service, so where you're doing most of your activities or interactions online and then the other bucket will continue in the old style face-to-face services, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And they've just announced the new providers of the face-to-face services Mm -hmm. and so all those brands that you've been seeing around the shop fronts and now are all going to change so that they'll be advertising that they are Workforce Australia service providers instead of Job Active. They've actually selected quite a lot of new agencies to be the providers of those services. In some areas, the providers have been removed altogether. One of those that stands out most notably to me, all of the providers that were in Geelong have been um, basically kicked out. So the employment services sector itself has been quite up in arms about the way that the new contracts have been distributed amongst the existing providers. Can I ask whether uh, Serena Rosso will continue to receive the contracts? Serena Rosso is one of the large for-profit organisations that lost quite a lot of contracts. The other one is Max. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Serena Russo was one of the ones that lost out the most. Um, actually, Serena still has contracts for other things. They're actually quite a large apprenticeship services provider. But yeah, so it's been a really, really significant market shakeup, the biggest one that I've seen.
3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Going back to what the uh, unemployed worker might expect, could you describe um, what it's going to look like when you log into your Workforce Australia dashboard or when you're going in for appointments? So most people will already be using a, um, an app or a dashboard through MyGov to report that they're meeting their requirements in Job Active. Dr Simone Casey. So one of the main things that will change is that instead of being required to report 20 job searches every month, people will be doing something called points-based activation. So you'll be able to kind of tick off that you've performed other tasks related to getting a job, like going to a job interview or doing some kind of work preparation activity. There's quite a lot of different um, choices that will be available to people to do that ticking off that they've met their requirements every month. Now, the people who are having face-to-face appointments, are they also being required to use the app? Yep, it's true that the online reporting requirements apply to pretty much everybody so that even if you're seeing a a service face-to-face, you will still be doing the um, online side of things as well. So rather than your employment services worker monitoring what you've done, the employment services worker would be focusing on how to try and help you get a job. But yes, you're you're caught up in all of those um, complexities around using digital. Mm -hmm. While it's supposed to be kind of a bit more flexible, There's also, I suppose, some concerns that this reliance on reporting everything digitally online could be fraught with issues, you know, like not doing something on time means that your payment gets suspended. Um, And that's one of the concerns we at ACOS have at the moment about the digital employment services or obvious issues around connectivity. It's not every day that everybody has perfect internet, even if they can afford it or, you know, their their device is functioning or they've remembered to charge it. All of these kind of things can go wrong when you rely too much on digital. But it should be said that the people who are using digital employment services will also have a phone line, a contact centre that they can get in touch with to say, hey, you know, I lost my phone or whatever. Although there is a bit of a paradox in that because if you've lost your phone, you can't really contact anybody by phone (laughs) to tell them that you can't report something online. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is like... A heavy investment in assumptions about people having digital, what we call digital ubiquity. Mm. And there are also concerns about are those digital interfaces necessarily accessible for people with disabilities or the other multilingual um, interfaces there for people to understand what the app is telling them. And also just in general terms, is the app really usable? You know, if I've got five points to complete within the month and I haven't done that and I'm like, well, how the hell can I complete these five points without getting my payment suspended? So that's the digital services. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. 
Radio.com.au. I did notice that in a report from January 2020, which you compiled with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, which was titled Mutual Obligation Independent Job Seeker Satisfaction Survey, uh, in that report you quoted Philip Elston from the United Nations warning the world about the digitisation of welfare. And I do think that quote is worth repeating, so I'll just read it out. Um, Philip Alston said that the digitisation of welfare systems has very often been used to promote deep reductions in the overall welfare budget. So we're looking at that. You've talked about the cost there. It also has been associated with a narrowing of the beneficiary pool, which says to me that uh, unemployed workers actually leave the uh, system and stop getting payments. Um, He says it's been associated with the elimination of some services, the introduction of demanding and intrusive forms of conditionality. That part scares me. Uh, The pursuit of behavioural modification goals (laughs) and the imposition of a stronger sanctions regime and the complete reversal of the traditional notion that the state should be accountable to the individual And I suppose that's what you're talking about, which is how do you negotiate those last five points when it's all online? Yeah, I think um, Philip Olsen also used the words, we must not stumble zombie-like into a digital dystopia. And it's certainly something that that is a live issue for people like myself who are at ACOS, where we're advocating with government to introduce a range of protections around the digital employment services. And um, the Human Rights Commission has also published some warnings along these lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so is just interacting with an app really kind of helping you get a job or is it just a form of surveillance? Mm. And I use the term digital dole parole to actually describe the shift to higher uses of digital surveillance without that reinvestment back in actually helping people in ways that help them get a job. Mm. The digital surveillance of the apps and so on is really just making sure that the government is satisfied that people have, you know, ticked the boxes and said they're doing the things that the government has decided are the things that are beneficial for people to find work. Mm. Um, My experience, the research that I've done, is often that we're operating in two worlds. We're operating the world of the government requirements versus the way that people are actually really going to find a job for themselves anyway. So you mentioned points-based activation and I'm understanding that there also is a new structure of required activities. Could you describe some of that for us? Yes, that's right. So in Job Active, the default activity that everybody had to do after 12 months of being unemployed was a work for all activity. So we saw a huge burgeoning in the use of work for all as the main activity And for people under 50, it was 25 hours a week. So it was pretty much like having a full-time job. For half the year, yeah. Yeah. And it was really used for our effect we call tree shaking, which is like people will do anything to get a job before they have to do six months of basically unpaid work in Work for the Doll. We heard many stories of people being required to work for the doll and not having other work available to them that they could have got um, instead of that. So I think the um, the concept of tree shaking, it doesn't really work. You know, it's assuming that people are avoiding getting jobs and that's not our experience. So what's going to happen in the new Workforce Australia model in face-to-face services, instead of the 12-month activity 
there'll be a six-month activity. So it'll be six months seeing your Workforce Australia service, then two months of an activity, and then back to six months seeing service, then two months of activity. So every six months you're doing two months of a required activity. Yes, and the shift will also be for people to do employability skills training instead of work for the doll. And there's a whole range of other sort of things that you're eligible to do in that sort of two monthly activity stage, which are pretty much the same things that people were able to do in the job active work for the dolls stage. It's just that they're not as easy to get into or before the activity period starts. But it's really worth anybody who's listening to investigate what the options are for their activity before you get to that activity point, because activities like work for the doll and employability skills are the default if you're not already doing something else. So, you know, other things are training, paid employment of a certain number of hours. Um, It's quite complicated what's eligible, not eligible in terms of voluntary work, but it's really worth people having a good look at this. I don't believe you'll get a lot of information out of your provider to help you prepare for this. Right. You mentioned that this was in relation to the face-to-face bucket of people. So for the digital bucket of people, do the activities look much the same? Uh, No, it's completely different. So if you're in digital employment services, you have an activity at four months. And so this activity is targeted at people who the government considers are at risk of not being able to find a job. So the default activity at four months in digital employment services is employability skills training. It is actually face-to-face training, although I believe there's also options to do it online. It means attending a training provider and starting a course that runs for, initially I think it's one month, and it might actually be two months. Is it going to be five days a week then? Uh, I think so, and I think there's options to do it part-time if you have a partial capacity, which means you've been assessed as, you know, having a disability or an illness or you're a carer. It means doing a basic kind of training on things like producing a resume, um, job searching, doing interview practice. So the training was initially developed for young people, uh, for people under 25, but with the change to Workforce Australia, this um, employability skills is being expanded to people of all ages. So there has been a fair bit of negative feedback on employability skills training in the past in the sense that it's been considered too basic. And this is feedback from people who are under 25. It's the don't forget to blow your nose style of training. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, where's the on button on the computer? I mean, there may be people who benefit from that. But again, for me, I feel like this is a wasted opportunity where money will be invested in services that most people don't really need. Mm. And I looked at the numbers on the number of people who will end up doing employability skills training, EST, it's the default activity. So it'll be something like in the first year around 200,000 people. Um, And I costed that as being something like $400 million coming out of the $1.2 billion budget. Mm, Interesting. And the money for that is going to training providers. And I question actually whether that's a really good investment. (laughs) 
throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So all of this is going to start officially on Monday the 4th of July 2022. And I believe the department will be contacting people on unemployment benefits ahead of time to give them fair warning. I think by the time this goes to air that some of those letters will have been going out and they give people general direction on the things that are changing and saying if you've been selected for digital, this is what you'll need to do from the 1st of July or if you're in face-to-face services, here's your provider. Dr Simone Casey. There's going to be a 10-day transition period where the new providers will be setting up the appointments with everybody if they are going to a face-to-face provider. If they're in the digital services, there won't be appointments, but they will be required to go online and update what they call the job plan. So it's actually a requirement for people to actually complete a job plan. If they find that challenging, they can ring up the digital contact centre and say, you know, I don't know what to put in my job plan or I want, um, and this is important, I want a credit in my job plan because I'm a carer or I'm, I'm a parent or I have a disability or there's no jobs in my labour market or I'm going through a crisis. So it's very important that people be aware that they can ring up to get these credits and these credits are part of the points-based activation. So instead of saying you have to complete 100 points in that month, you would only have to complete 70 or 60 or 50 or depending on the number of credits that were um, applicable to your situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how available the information will be to people about these credits, but it's something that I emphasise. And when I get information from the Department of Employment, I'll be putting it out onto ACOS website as well. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot out there at the moment explaining all of this stuff. And I was just wondering how much leeway will people who are receiving JobSeeker have to adjust to the new system without fear of penalties? So government understands that coming to terms with this points-based activation is going to be complex. So for the first month, you'll have a grace period, for example, if you weren't able to complete your points. So it's really only that first month that the grace period will apply and then things will revert back to normal where if you haven't completed the um, requirement, your payment will be suspended. So I emphasise to people the first month is important for making sure you get the credits that you need put into your job plan. When you say the normal compliance, is this what I used to know as the targeted compliance framework? 
Yeah, it is called that. That's right. Yeah, so um, targeted compliance framework will be switched on after that first month. Mm. I have to say anyone who can come up with something called the targeted compliance framework, it just amazes me that there are people, you know, in Australia who sit there and think of how to put other people in Australia through a targeted compliance framework. (laughs) I can't help thinking these people would not be out of place working in a gulag. Anyway, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I... um, in my own research, I have published views about whether it is ethical to punish people who are already experiencing poverty with more poverty when really the problem that you're trying to solve by helping people get a job is poverty in the first place. So it all seems to me very <laughs> contradictory to be using threats to economic survival as a lever to you know get people to get jobs because, as we know, unemployment payments in this country are very low um, and people are already very well incentivized to try and get work if they can. We've talked about this EST or these employability skills training and this emphasis on the training and I did find a quote by the late economist Hyman Minsky who argued that any public policy that favours education and training over job creation puts the cart before the horse and is unlikely to succeed. And that idea has been developed by a school of economics known as modern monetary theory, which we follow on this show. And in the macroeconomic textbook that was authored by the economist professors Bill Mitchell, Randall Ray and Martin Watts, in this textbook they say that if the problem is a job shortage, then all these policies do is redistribute unemployment within the unfortunate group who are blamed for their joblessness. So, of course, uh, what we often talk about on this show is the solution to unemployment, which really is supplying a job. And that program would be known as a job guarantee, which is where the federal government would give a job to anyone who wants one. And you would be working for the public good at a socially inclusive wage, not the below poverty rates of the unemployment benefits. I just wondered if you had any thought on this idea of the federal government supplying jobs rather than supplying job readiness and using this model of job activation. Yeah, so um, it's interesting that you raise that because it's part of my work at ACOS to promote a we call it a jobs and training guarantee. Oh, terrific. I mean, jobs guarantee has to include some kind of um, brokering of a job so that we're looking at a model where it's either a job that's already in the market, so that means recruiting employers to provide jobs to give people who are long-term unemployed a chance and using various incentives to give people those chances. Um, But also there is definitely a need for investment in job creation and we look at models relating to local job partnerships, so like sort of regional job development to develop local communities. Mm. Um, It's very clear that you can't leave job creation to the market alone. There are pockets of Australia where there are just not jobs available. Um, there's also various forms of discrimination for people who've been long-term unemployed. Um, and we're seeing that now with the labour shortages that the employers are crying out for you know, more workers, but are they actually giving the people that have been long-term unemployed a chance? We haven't seen that. You know, There's really no incentive for them to do that. 
So is that work you're doing at ACOS, would you say it's informed by modern monetary theory or are you coming at it from a different angle? Yeah, I'm, look, I, I am not an economist and, and I am pretty agnostic personally around monetary theory. Um. <laughs> I guess our emphasis is just on looking at how do you pay for it. And of course, it's just saying that the federal government has all the ability in the world to pay for this. Yeah, well, COVID showed us that it is possible to get access to additional resources and that getting access to those resources can actually create benefits for the economy mm. um, in terms of the secondary flow and effects of having that money in the economy, creating jobs. You know, the main reason that we're not in a serious recession in Australia yet is because we had that monetary supply at a time that we needed it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an economist either, but uh, it certainly makes sense to me. And it's interesting, too, that you point out the current contradiction that there is a pool of unemployed workers and also employers crying out for workers, and somehow the two don't seem to match up. Yeah, I mean, there's a strong push at ACOS on full employment. Mm, Wonderful. Yeah, um, it is now critical at this moment that this government uh, take the scenario that we're in where there is a labour shortage that can't be filled by overseas workers quickly, although they are tripling back in. Um, But before it's too late to try and um, solve this problem of especially long-term unemployment. One thing I feel like I've noticed with the way that the government structures the unemployment services industry is that there seems to be like this limbo between the federal department and then these employment services providers or job agencies. And that is like that when things go wrong at the coalface, so basically between the caseworker and the unemployed person, that the job agencies can effectively say, well, I was only following orders. As you mentioned, this contract by the government actually requires them to behave in certain ways. But then on the other hand, the government seems to claim that they have no power to oversee the job agencies or that, in fact, they're not giving orders, they're just purchasing services. But it does seem to me that um, there's no place where accountability resides and unemployed workers are always at risk of falling into the abyss. And I was just wondering if you had any comments on that dynamic. Yeah, it's a massive problem around accountability. It's something that I'm very exposed to all the time in terms of feedback that I get about, you know, people's treatment at an individual situation that the provider itself may not be administering the rules correctly. They may not be exercising what the government believes the level of flexibility should be. And this may reflect some of the chronic issues in the sector itself in terms of very low remuneration for workers, very high turnover, um, and that there's a kind of performance-oriented culture, I suppose, where, you know, we have to drive people to do certain things so that we get the outcome payments and that we meet our KPIs. So, you know, the more jobs you get people into quickly. So there's some chronic issues within the providers themselves around quality. Um, And then there's a whole uh, layer on top of that of, you know, what happens when people complain? So you can complain directly to your provider. And then if someone manages to get that up to the department's customer service line, 
then how the government then administers accountability to those providers. So it's like, okay, well, we, we're hearing that X provider in Y location is doing Z thing over and over again. What happens? How quickly do we get down to that provider and say, hey, guys, stop it. This is not what we want you to do. And there's a huge gap between the government stepping in and acting to discipline a provider, you know, because they've heard that there's a chronic issue happening at that provider. Mm. Um, this is a, a massive issue around quality in the system that we're very alive to at ACOS that we're currently having quite a lot of conversations about because we're really sick of seeing people being punished for doing things that they didn't have to do. That wasn't actually the law that they had to do it and there's no accountability. Now, the government does run what they call a quality framework and quality assurance exercises where they go in and check what the providers have been doing. But in our view and and my view as well, that this is a, a system that's not regulated enough. There is no effective system for a person who feels that they are being mistreated mm. or where the uh, social security law is being maladministered to go to to say something wrong is being done here and something needs to be done about it. Mm. Now, the Unemployed Workers Union have done a great job of setting up the advocacy line to provide individual support to people. And the Welfare Rights Centres also, you know, they pick up issues from people, but it's very ad hoc. Most people don't know that there's somewhere else they can go and those places don't actually have the capacity to change that provider's behaviour. So there needs to be some kind of regulator or watchdog that has teeth that can go in and quickly solve problems for people instead of, you know, we hear people who get kicked off their payment for four weeks because it may not have been something that they have done wrong. Do you have any hope that the system can become a little bit more compassionate? All of the things that I've just spoken about are all things that we're putting together as a list of policy asks for the new government. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I guess there's always uh, incremental change, you know, little things that can be done that we keep plugging away at. Um, and while I think the sector will continue to advocate for broader systemic changes over time, I don't think we'll see, um, you know, massive change. Like we won't see policy on mutual obligation completely rewritten, we might see some of the uh, harsher parts of it being um, changed. And that's certainly what I hope we can get. Is there anything that you would like to mention before we close up here? I'm running a mailing list of people who want to be in touch with me and tell me about what they're finding. I'm very interested in hearing people who are affected, um, what actually happens to them. So um, Simone at ACOS.org.au just email me and say you'd like to be in touch and I'll put you on my list and then um, hope to have more conversations with you as things start changing. S-I-M-O-N-E at acos.org.au. Every day I receive emails from people about things that they're experiencing, um, awful tales and you know I do find all of that very distressing and very informative and I do hope that those things don't continue in the new model. Well Simone I do think of you as a national treasure and now that you're um, in there with ACOS I think you'll be a force to be reckoned with. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much for your work. Oh that's lovely. Thanks so much Anne. Thanks Simone. A wise man by the name of Victor Quirk once said to me, 
whenever you are discussing the surveillance and demonising of unemployed workers, don't forget to say why the unemployed are treated so harshly. So here is labour market political sociologist Dr Victor Quirk discussing the use and abuse of unemployed workers on our show back in December 2020. If you were to have a caring, humane, decent system of support for unemployed people, then it would undermine the real advantage of having the pool of unemployed. And that is the purpose of having a pool of unemployed is to put fear into the hearts of the workers in their jobs so that they fear the sack because they fear being unemployed. Mm -hmm. So if you made unemployment a comfortable, secure, safe and dignified experience, you would not be generating the fear of the sack in the workplace. Mm. So not only do you have to have a pretext for creating the unemployment, you also need to be able to justify treating them inhumanely. Mm. And that's why the thing that solved both problems in a way was the demonising of the unemployed and the construction of this doll bludger myth Mm -hmm. because you could be saying, well, we're dealing with unemployment. We're doing everything we can to bring down unemployment because we're bullying the unemployed as hard as we can go. So having a humane unemployment system would defeat the purpose of having a level of unemployment. Yeah, it's about managing workplace discipline. The reasons why when the boss tells us to jump, we jump. If you want to have a workplace where the workers will put up with difficult conditions, poor security, casualization, all of those sorts of things, the fear of not having a job has to be made very salient. And the fact that that pool of people is sitting there undermines the capacity of workers in employment to organise and defend their rights and conditions. I mean, one of the conscious elements of this is the disempowerment of the labour movement. And then, of course, the job services are so frustrating and and horrible to deal with that you think, well, they mustn't be very good at their job, but it depends what their job is. If their job was to actually help people find work, they'd be terrible. Yeah, their uselessness is part of the deal because, as Victor was saying, the idea also is to make the experience of unemployment as as horrible as possible. Yeah. Why, Why would the government do this? Why would the government create a deliberate pool of unemployed? It's purely to put downward pressure on wages. It was used as a union-busting measure to to take away the power of the unions, to take away the power of organised labour, because if you've got a pool of starved, desperate, unemployed people who will do anything for a buck, to put downward pressure on wages. The bargaining capacity of workers is actually the thing that they're trying to manage. Mm-hmm. That's why you maintain a pool of unemployment. That's why there's always been fierce resistance to the establishment of full employment because of the fear that it will empower workers. Mm-hmm. That is what the nature of the relationship between unemployment and workers' bargaining power is. Dr. Victor Quirk, who Victor was great. is a lovely guy and also a labour market political sociologist. the government will say that all this is about getting unemployed people into regular employment, 
This entire so-called employment services industry only makes sense at face value if you take on board the assumption that there exists suitable jobs for all the people looking for work. And if there are suitable jobs, and for suitable think location, hours, pay, safety, the duties and so on, if there are suitable jobs then you must assume unemployment exists because the employer and the potential employee have somehow been unable to find or recognise one another. Or, you have to assume the unemployed person does not really want to work. But, if we think back to what Dr Quirk had to say about the treatment of unemployed people, you have to wonder whether the punitive aspect of employment services is a feature, not a bug. If you assume the government deliberately maintains a level of unemployment, then surely the whole industry is a sham. Listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. So we have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.